Hello, this is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry in the Inland Pacific Northwest of the beautiful USA. Today is the 1st of August 2020, so we've made it to the third, what I call, essential month of summer, and we have a whole month left of summer at least. I know we have September too, but uh, when August starts, a lot of people assume that summer's over, but not the way I look at it. August is a full, right on summer month. And so we have at least 30 to 31 days left before we even think about calling summer officially closed. Of course, in September, um, Labor Day is usually the cutoff point. So there's plenty of time for camping in August. And when the weather cools down a little bit, that's what I plan to do. So um, what we're going to do today is dis continue our discussion of cellular senescence and human aging. I've been talking to you about some of the uh, pharmaceuticals that are used for various diseases in humans and how some of the off-label effects of those pharmaceuticals, such as metformin, um, which is normally used for type 2 diabetes, seems to perhaps have a um, increasing effect in longevity in animal models. And so I told you there's a lot of caveats to that because whenever you get an increase in longevity, you have the potential for an oncogenic event, which can lead to tumorigenous cancer. So we're going to go, we're going to continue on this frame of discussion a little bit more uh, and talk more about some of the um, particular drugs that might be involved in uh, both aging and in associated disease that are linked to either the risk for, for shortening lifespan or for having chronic morbidity during a lifespan and not necessarily decreasing the uh, potential for longevity. So I want to talk about mTOR inhibitors. Now there's a drug called rapamycin and rapamycin has been shown to extend lifespan and promote also health span in the murine model. Treatment beginning late in life is sufficient to extend the lifespan. And in some of these studies, it's shown to reverse cardiac decline and it actually improve the immune function in mice. Recent study also reported that a rapamycin derivative significantly boosted the immune function in elderly people. So there is a little bit of anecdotal work in humans. So for you to know what uh, an mTOR inhibitor like rapamycin does, you have to know what mTOR is. And mTOR is a serine threonine protein kinase. And basically, it's a, we've talked about it many times in this program. It's a central regulator of cellular metabolism, growth and survival. It responds to hormones, growth factors, nutrients, uh, energy, and even stress signals. mTOR is the mammalian target of rapamycin. And it directly or indirectly regulates phosphorylation of, so far, around 800 distinct proteins. It functions as a part of a two structurally and functionally distinct signaling complex. So you've got mTORC1 and mTORC2, where the C is for uh, the word complex. And so an activated mammalian TORC1 upregulates protein synthesis, 
biophosphorylating key regulators of, of translation and for the proteins necessary for ribosome biosynthesis. That includes the phosphorylation of the eukaryotic initiation factor called 4EBP1 and the release of its inhibition towards the elongation initiation factor 4E or EIF4E. So the E, remember, is eukaryotic. The I stands for initiation and the F stands for factor. Now, moreover, um, mTOR phosphor, mTOR, mTOR1 phosphorylates and activates another protein called RPS6KB1. That's the S6K kinase that has a whole lot of attention paid when we're talking about autoimmune diseases. Uh, and not only the uh, SKB1, but the SKB2. Uh, those promote protein synthesis directly by modulating the activity of their downstream targets. And that includes the ribosomal protein S6. That's why it's called the um, S6 kinase. And also the eukaryotic translation initiation factor 4B, okay, which we just talked about. And the inhibitor of translation initiation, which is known as PDC-D4. So let's get into a little bit more of this detail. Now, it stimulates... This overall system, this mTORC system, stimulates the pyrimidine biosynthetic pathway. And it does so through a transcriptional enhancement of the OPP pathway or the PPP pathway. And that stands for either oxidative pentose phosphate, which is how I learned it in graduate school, or simply the pentose phosphate pathway. Now, the pentose phosphate pathway takes glucose 6-phosphate and goes through two oxidation reactions. And those initial two reactions... Uh, uh, you lose carbon dioxide, so the decarboxylating, and uh, you lose you lose one uh, carbon in that reaction in those two reactions, and you make NADPH. Now, nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide phosphate reduced form. That particular nucleotide is used for reductive biosynthesis. Now, the C five sugar you make after going through those first two reactions in the OPP is actually going to be converted ultimately to ribose 5-phosphate. So that means you're on your way to make nucleotides, pyrimidines and purines. Of course, nucleotides are necessary for mRNA synthesis and DNA synthesis, right? So the OPP pathway is really important for regulating the flow of carbon from glucose uh, directly into nucleotide biosynthesis. So think about times of uh, the need for uh, massive amount of nucleotides, like for example, in the S phase during DNA replication in the cell cycle. So you stimulate the pentose phosphate pathway and you produce a, uh, a, an intermediate called 5-phosphoribosyl 1-pyrophosphate. That's called PRPP. Obviously, it requires ribose 5-phosphate, which I told you is one of the early uh, products of the oxidation group of 6-phosphate, but there's that pathway. So an allosteric activator of an enzyme called CAD. Now, CAD is a multi-enzyme protein that has carbamylase phosphate synthase 2, aspartate transcarbamylase, and dihydroerotase activities. Now, those of you that are well-informed know that those are enzymes in the pyrimidine biosynthetic cycle. So that is, you have three enzyme activities linked to one polyprotein called the CAD protein, okay? 
And, you, and that's right, you, have a, you do have a carbamylophosphate synthetase. That's the same enzyme, and we catalyze the same reaction, basically, um, in the urea cycle, but the synthetase 2 is involved strictly in uh, pyrimidine nucleotide biosynthesis. Okay? And this is, of course, the de novo pathway, not the salvage pathway, as you might guess. So um, when you make PRPP, which is from ribose 5-phosphate, right, which came from the PPP pathway, which is all triggered because of the mTORF1 complex, you're leading to the activation of the CAD, which means you're on your way to make pyrimidines. And when you make pyrimidines, you make purines. Uh, so that's one major function of mTORF1. mTORF1 also regulates ribosome synthesis by activating RNA polymerase 3-dependent transcription. So that's going to give you ribosomal RNA. So RNA polymerase 3 gives you ribosomal RNA, not messenger RNA, or transfer RNA as product. MTORC1 also regulates lipid synthesis, hooray, by working through the sterol receptive um, enhancement binding factors. So SREBF1 and SREBP1 and also the LPIN1. That it's, all those are going to be um, uh, transcriptionally activating genes involved in sterile biosynthesis. MTORC1 also negatively regulates autophagy. So when mTARP is turned on, the cell will not carry out or go through the practices of autophagy. Remember, autophagy is sort of a fail-safe when a cell needs to regroup. It can reutilize its macromolecules by turning on proteases and leukocytases and lipases, reforming those cell lineages into um, uh, uh, polymers. And those polymers like proteins and like membrane lipid components and uh, nucleotides, all of that will then lead to the cell having a metabolic rearrangement, okay? So it's not just a, a static event, it's actually a reorganization event. And that's induced when the cell does not go to apoptosis. So two stress phenomena in cells, we just recently talked about this, um, both in video lecture and on the audio. When a cell goes into a stress response, um, it can go through apoptosis, and apoptosis, of course, means it kills itself, or it can go to an autophagy, and autophagy al allows it to um, regenerate, again, macromolecules and even organelles. So a component of that is mitophagy, uh, and the peroxome also uh, turns over this way, uh, and even components of the plasma membrane do, of course, as well. So autophagy and apoptosis, both of those are like counterpoints. Again, they're not contradictory. They're, they're contrarian to one another in terms of cell fate. And mTORC shuts off the autophagy system and allows basically for the energetics that could lead to cell division. Okay? But there are some interesting paradoxes to that, and we'll get to them later. So it is clear that mTORC1 negatively regulates autophagy. So under nutrient sufficiency, mTORC1 phosphorylates a protein called ULK1 at a specific serine residue. Disrupts, that disrupts the interaction with AMP kinase, and it prevents the activation then of the ULK1. Obviously, it's a kinase. So it also prevents autophagy through phosphorylation of another protein simply called the autophagy inhibitor. Okay. 
Now, mTOR1 exerts a feedback control on upstream growth factor signal, right? So you can see this is all about, all about anabolism. As part of the mTOR2 complex, the mTOR protein itself may regulate uh, quite abundant other cellular processes, including survival and organization of the cytoskeleton. mTOR2 plays a critical role in the phosphorylation of a serine 473 of the uh, classic canonical AKT1 pathway. So that's a pro-survival effector that's associated with phosphoinositol 3 kinase activity, right? B1,3 kinase and AKT go hand in hand. Those are all anabolic systems. So mTORC1 also probably regulates the actin cytoskeleton uh, matrix. So again, mTORC1 turns on 4EBP, turns on S6K. Both the 4EBP and the S6K are functioning at the ribosome, the 40X ribosome. So the mTORC will block 4EBP. When it blocks 4EBP, that protein cannot block the initiation factor 4E. Likewise, because mTORC activates S6 kinase, that will allow for the eukaryotic initiation factor 4B to turn on. So you have initiation factor 4E turning on, 4B, uh, and then in association at the 40S ribosomal subunit, you have the 4G and the uh, F3, as well as the F4A, okay? Ultimately, that allows for, uh, to generate the ribosomes, you can have an AUG start signal. mTORC also allows for transfer RNA production. So that's uh, one of the other important things. So obviously, you're making transfer RNA, you're making ribosomal RNA, you're activating the 40S ribosome with mTORC1, uh, and so you're ready, basically, to start synthesizing polypeptides. So always think of mTORC1 as being proactive in polypeptide synthesis, and that is protein translation. Um, okay, so I already told you a little bit about the ALK1 blocking autophagy. There's, a, there's three other proteins involved in there. You don't need to know those right now. Um, and so you get ribosome uh, biogenesis. Ultimately, because of all of this translational machinery being ticked up, you're going to increase translation of polypeptides and then, of course, growth, right? So all of this is going to be uh, turned on by mTORC1. So let's summarize mTOR just in a more generic sense. Um, when you get energy or nutrient deprivation, you're going to turn on the AMP kinase pathway. The AMP kinase pathway is going to phosphorylate the homartan TSC1, and it's going to allow it to dimerize, heterodimerize with a protein called tuberin TSC2. When that dimer is formed, it blocks the REB-GTP. If you block the REB-GTP, you don't turn on mTORC1, okay? Now, rapamycin works downstream from all those events. Rapamycin directly inhibits the mTOR kinase. Now, on the other side of that, if you've got insulin circulating and you've got nutrient stimulation, that turns on, of course, the phosphatidylinositol 1,3 kinase, which will then turn on the AKT protein kinase B pathway, and that will effectively block the dimerization of the 
Hamartin tuberin dimer, and therefore that will not block the RebGTP, but actually not suppress it, so it will work. And the RebGTP is a GTPase, so we go on and trigger RebTurf1, and it'll carry out the same process as before, working through the 4EBP1, blocking, blocking that, so that doesn't block the initiation factor 4E. It positively regulates the S6 kinase, which gives you the ribosomal complex S6 whole system. Again, ultimately, mTOR, what it does, it enhances protein synthesis, metabolism, cell growth, what else? Uh, cell proliferation uh, in, the, in the neural system, synaptic plasticity. Uh, it enhances ion channel expression of the synapse. And it also is involved in neurogenesis um, and the inhibition of neuronal death. So when insulin binds to its receptor or the IGF insulin growth factor binds to its receptor, it triggers class one, that's the phosphatidylinositol 3 kinase. That, as I said, activates the protein kinase B, AKT. It blocks that TSC system. And we just went through the same, we went through that process for you. Um, low energy, you turn on the LKB, the AMP kinase. The AMP kinase, interestingly, here's how, here's a feedback. Remember, we we're talking about metformin is the compound that blocks mTOR. Metformin actually also it enhances AMP kinase expression. So metformin turns on AMP kinase, and that's one of the ways it blocks mTOR. Because when you turn on AMP kinase, remember, it allows for that heterodimerization of the TSCs, which will then block the Rab, which will then not be able to activate mTOR. So metformin activating AMP kinase, blocking mTOR activity. Got that? Okay, so mTOR works through AMP kinase. Now that's kind of interesting, right? Because we've talked a lot about AMP kinase. Remember, AMP kinase is going to turn on beta oxidation of fatty acids as well. So this is yet another uh, event that is generated and controlled by the AMP kinase, master controller. Here's a paper that was published a few years back, actually it's molecular cancer therapy. I pulled this paper from a March uh, 2014. Uh, this would be volume three, page 596 and ongoing. The title of this paper was the AMP kinase inhibitor compound C is a potent AMP kinase independent anti-glioma agent. So remember, I was going to be, ultimately be talking about glioblastoma. Here's a little taste of it. So let me talk to you just about what this paper says, and then we're going to go back to a generic discussion. AMP activated protein kinase. AMP kinase, of course, evolutionarily conserved. It's an energy sensor. It's involved in um, survival and metabolic regulation. An active AMP kinase inhibits biosynthetic enzymes like mTOR. But remember what AMP kinase did at the discrete level of lipogenesis. AMP kinase inhibited the acetylcholic carboxylase. So without the acetylcholic carboxylase, you can't do lipid biogenesis. So it blocks mTOR, so no protein synthesis. It blocks acetylcholic carboxylase, so no lipid synthesis. That really stops the cell from anab anabolic uh, endeavor. So all of that is to ensure that cells maintain essential nutrients and energy during a metabolic crisis. Now, why would AMP kinase trigger a metabolic crisis? Well, remember, it's the energy currency of the cell, ATP. So as ATP is depleted, 
you go from ATP to ADP, and then ADP to AMP. So as you change that rheostat and you increase the relative amount of AMP, adenosine monophosphate, to either ADP or ATP, what you do is you trigger a system that says that nutrient deprivation is occurring. So you don't want to be in a mode where you're burning ATP because you're getting depleted by ATP, and that's that, and and that is recognized because AMP increases, and you need AMP to trigger the kinase because it's an AMP-dependent kinase. AMP kinase, right? So you get that essential nutrition that is becoming. Um, depleted, and then you go through what's known as a metabolic crisis. So despite knowing a lot about AMP kinase, there haven't been a whole lot of inhibitors that work too well on it. There's one molecule simply called compound C in the literature. It's actually known as dorsomorphin in other literature. Widely used as a cell-based biochemical in, in vivo assays because it's a very good tight selective inhibitor of AMP kinase if it's used in the recommended concentrations. Higher or lower concentrations, you get pleiotropic effects like you do with all pharmaceuticals. And nearly all the reports I looked at, including a recent study in glioma, the biochemical and cellular effects of compound C have been attributed to its inhibitory action directed to AMP kinase. So if you examine the status of AMP kinase activation in human gliomas, uh, what you find is that glioblastomas express copious amounts of active AMP kinase. Hmm. Compound C effectively reduces glioma viability in vitro both by inhibiting proliferation and inducing cell death. So as expected, AMP, uh, this compound C inhibits AMP kinase. However, now this, this again, because you're, you're listening to authentic biochemistry and not just some you know, textbook uh, teacher. This is an actual biochemist telling you this. However, even though you inhibit AMP kinase, the antiprolivative effects of the inhibitor were AMP kinase independent. So you did block AMP kinase, but that's not what caused the lack of proliferation mm, in the in the glioblastoma. Instead, the compound C directly kills glioma cells by many other mechanisms, including the activation of a calpane calthepsin pathway, those are proteases, an inhibition directly of the AKT, and an inhibition of the mTORC1 and 2, okay, complexes. It all, and so ultimately, this compound, which knocks out AM kinase, so it's not that specific because it's doing all these other activities. Now, we know, though, that AMP kinase also blocks mTORC. So that means that just knocking out AMP kinase isn't the only aspect of using this inhibitor. Now, there's one level of significance deeper, you see. Some authors would say, well, we knocked out AMP kinase, but if we don't really think about what AMP kinase is doing with mTORC, then we're going to say that this inhibitor knocks out mTORC 1 and 2. But I just told you AMP kinase shuts down mTOR. So you need to keep that in mind. Now, the really interesting thing is it doesn't always happen that way. So if mTOR is not a component of what's happening, say, in a tumor or what's happening in a uh, liver that's going through early stages of fibrosis, 
then shutting down, uh, then either shutting down or activating AM kinase won't work through the mTORC system because it's not already being activated or it's no longer being suppressed. And so the overall profile of what AMP kinase inhibition or activation does will not work through the mTORC pathway. You see how that works? So you have to be aware of what the cells are doing in terms of anabolism and catabolism, even within the context of having AMP kinase activation to understand inhibition of the AMP kinase and its downstream physiological event effects. So that's what I'm trying to get you to understand. So this ultimately uh, totally associates with autophagy and necrotosis. Okay, so there's a lot of other aspects up here I'm not going to get into right now. Importantly, though, in glioblastoma, normal astrocytes are significantly less susceptible. You see here? To compound C, this dorsomorphin, which kills AMP kinase activity. Okay, so that means that in only in the glioma, only in the glioblastoma lineage, do you get this positive effect on inhibiting the glioma. Now, of course, that's what you would expect, but the reason you're not having that effect on the astrocyte is because you don't have the mTOR functioning, you see, in the same way. So the mTOR is going to turn on very, if it, if it phosphorylates 800 proteins, you can understand that it's 800 different combinations, right? So you're way up in the tens of millions of possible interactions. Just want you to understand this, how, how complex biochemistry really is. And that's why having one compound inhibiting one really important um, signal transducer like AMP kinase doesn't mean you're always going to get the same effect. Right? And it doesn't mean that it's because the system is resistant to it. It means because the system isn't poised to receive that signaling at the time that that drug that inhibits the AMP kinase is introduced. That's why you get multiple pleiotropic effects of AM, AMP kinase inhibition. And it's also one of the reasons why you don't see a lot of AMP kinase inhibitors on the market. If you go to look for inhibitors um, in, in the catalogs, right? Do you want to inhibit AMP kinase because you think it has something to do with the system you're looking at? You're going to find that there's not a lot of really good selective inhibitors of that pathway. Better thing to do is to block the uh, AMP production, right? But when you do that, you change the energy status of the cell, and then you trigger a whole host of other responses, which actually you can control, but um, that involves a lot more mechanisms in, in vitro and doing the experiments, which I won't talk about now. So let's get back to cellular senescence. I told you about the mTOR. I told you about the whole thing that this mTOR, if, if, you, if, you, if you deactivate it, it seems like, like with rapamycin, it seems like in a mouse model, you can get an increase in healthy longevity. So right away, come, come up to you know, several octaves above what we were just talking, but keep everything I just said in mind. What is that telling you? That's telling you that active stimulated growth, even if it's not in a tumor environment, promotes advancing cellular senescence. So one of the things we've learned so far, this is a major take-home message, is that aging, both the aging, biological aging, like gerontological aging in the human, and the specific cellular senescence associated with it is 
aided and abetted by rapid changes in metabolism. So if you have a slow progression of either anabolism or catabolism, that rate is what we're talking about there, the rate of change, right? Numerator over denominator. That's the most significant thing, denominator being delta T, right? Time. They're going to, that slowing down of metabolism gives you a longer cellular lifespan, okay? That's a key take-home message about aging. That's what I found after looking at literally probably around a thousand papers over the years I've been studying aging. So I'm going to leave you with that because we're almost out of time. And we're going to get back into discussing cellular senescence. We're going to start talking about cell cycle and cyclins and domains within the cell cycle that are also regulated. We're going to be talking, we're going to roll that back into a discussion of metabolism, of course, because metabolism is ultimately all the energy is for um, cell cycle, right? You need a lot of ATP to be able to generate a new cell because of uh, replication of the genome alone takes a lot of energy. All right. So again, it's the 1st of August, uh, 2020. This is Dr. Dan Guerra. And this is Authentic Biochemistry and hope to talk to you real soon. And right now I'm saying bye for now.